0: Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 12:17 a.m. Sunday night slash Monday morning, and it is uh, 17 minutes after Mother's Day. So if you're just hearing this uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, uh, happy Mother's Day! And uh, we had a really great service. We kind of stripped down the music a little bit and just had Gianna on guitar and vocals. Uh, Matt on sax and Nat on cajon and it was a really cool day uh, thankful for everybody for being there and thankful for everybody listening now uh, this is one of the rare occasions where I don't really have any announcements we don't have anything going on I do want to apologize to anyone who has been trying to keep up with us via live stream uh, as you may or may not know uh, if you aren't local We don't own our own building. Uh, We rent from the St. Pete Opera Company and they are a fantastic partner. They treat us extremely well. We are so lucky to um, be in their space. And they have been having some internet issues recently and I think it's almost all fixed. Hoping for this upcoming Sunday, things to pretty much be back to normal on the streaming front. So if you are listening to this and you're someone who normally does live stream, Apologies, uh, but hopefully you like the podcast format and we should be back to live streaming this week Okay, uh, Hannah has a really cool message Uh, This is one of my favorite ones that she's done in a little while We are currently going through the book of Exodus uh, And even though it's Mother's Day, this message has absolutely nothing to do with Mother's Day
1: He is correct, this message has nothing to do with Mother's Uh, But I am a mother And I am talking um this is different because y'all are listening (laughs) I do want to acknowledge though because everyone's like Mother's Day is so amazing and it is amazing and mothers are awesome um I love my mom also I love myself and I'm a great mom um but Mother's Day can also be really hard and I just want to acknowledge that as well like wherever you are it's fine, maybe your mom's not here, maybe your mom's a terrible person. Maybe you love your mom, but it's complicated, and you were like, there's 70 billion things I wish you didn't do to me as a kid. It's all fine. <laughs> maybe you want to be a mom and it hasn't happened. Maybe you lost a baby, like, I get it. I'm, I, I have a two-year-old and a, a half of one. <laughs> Approximately a half of one, according to the app. It is the size of a papaya. <laughs> Which, whatever that means, I saw a papaya, yesterday at Trader Joe's, and I was like, that feels about right. <laughs> just sitting right here. Um, but Mother's Day, the, if for any reason is hard for you, is fine. It's a little hard for me, too, when I have kids, because both of these are rainbow babies, and I just... The first Mother's Day after our first miscarriage, I literally, I worked in a church. that made a big deal about Mother's Day, and I scheduled myself off that day, and I went to do something and I was like, oh no, there's this thing I have to do, it's like pre-planned. And I like made up a whole thing about it because I didn't want to be like, I don't want to be part of your thing because I'm just going to cry all day, which I didn't go. And it was lovely. (laughs) So you know, whatever you need to do, it's fine. It's enough about moms until, you know, after church. (laughs) This morning we actually get to talk about Moses, the man, the myth, the legend, or whatever. But uh, before that though, we should talk about why Moses was needed to begin with. We're going through some of the stories in Exodus for the next couple of weeks. So a lot of them you'll be familiar with, like the Israelites are leaving Egypt, Moses is happening. Um, Exodus opens with a massive problem for Pharaoh. And the problem is there's a lot of Israelites. Verse seven of chapter one says, they were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. That's a nice way of saying they had a lot of babies. There's so many babies. There was babies literally everywhere and they were really young and vibrant and energetic group of people. So like, Gen Z. I was going to say millennials, but you all know we're not vibrant or energetic. <laughs> we're tired. Also, also, I don't want to offend you first thing, but we're not that young anymore. <laughs> Put it a less nice way, Pharaoh has an immigrant problem. So from his point of view, he has all these people, this prolific mass of teeming Israelites who just keep popping out babies left and right. And he's like, oh no, what if they rebel? What if they join ranks with our enemies? What if they're a drain on society? We have to do something about the Israelites. And his first move is to enslave them all. Kind of a crazy first move, if you ask me. You're like, sit down with a meeting with your board of Egypt and you're like, hey, we have quite a lot of Israelites and they're very into having babies, so there's gonna be more of them very soon. What should we do about them? Maybe we should ask them if they're planning on taking over Egypt? (laughs) No, no, instead we should make them our slaves. So that's what they did, escalated very quickly, um, and also was a very bad move. Bad move, Pharaoh. (laughs) Pharaoh unwittingly is picking a fight with Israel's God, who specifically commanded the Israelites to be fruitful and prosper and have lots of babies. And we actually don't need to go very far, only five verses later, to find that this strategy backfires wildly. So the more Pharaoh oppresses the Israelites, the more babies they have. I don't know how that works, but it works. And at this point in the story, okay, we have, we have lots of Israelites. Pharaoh's like, oh, no, what do we do? I know forced slavery and then the Israelites are like oh no but then they still have lots of babies and then women enter the story and there's five women who step up and all collude to undermine Pharaoh there's two midwives Shiphrah and Pua there's Moses' sister and his mother and Pharaoh's own daughter so when enslaving the Israelites backfires they keep having a ton of babies Pharaoh's next move is to order the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew boy babies presumably because boys grow up to be soldiers all of them um and of course the girls can live because i i don't know (laughs) i don't know what pharaoh's logic is here maybe they're all going to be servants or concubines or something it's interesting to me that the midwives names are given we have shipra and pua these midwives and pharaoh's name is not given has anyone ever noticed that in exodus that is intentional and It is important because the women are being remembered and Pharaoh is being purposefully forgotten and shamed. And he's further shamed by being completely outwitted by two Hebrew midwives. Rather than carry out his orders, it says the midwives fear God and they let all the baby boys live. And when Pharaoh confronts these midwives about it, they flat out lie to him and insult all Egyptian women for good measure. This is what it says in verse 19. Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That may not sound like an insult, but I promise you it is. They are saying, um, Pharaoh, Egyptian women just take so long to have babies. <laughs> you need help. They need help having babies. The Hebrew women, they just, done. Which if you know anything about childbirth, that is not how it works. Okay, so not only are they lying about Egyptian women, they're lying about the fact that they weren't there to help give birth. And then God rewards them with families of their own, which is my favorite part, that God is rewarding lying (laughs) in the Bible. Very scandalous and very delightful. Um, If it bothers you, I want you to think like these people in antiquity, they're foreign, they're enslaved, and they're women. They had to do something when trying to confront unchecked absolute power. Nothing seems to have changed actually in the world. Like even when it comes to confronting like our current society that prioritizes certain people and privileges certain people, or even like I think of my own heritage because I'm Jewish. Like there were German Christians who hid Jews in their house and lied when the SS came knocking. They did what they had to do to protect the people. And the midwives have to do did what they had to do to protect the baby boys. Now, Pharaoh takes out the big guns. I don't know, like, it seems like pretty big guns already, personally, enslaving everyone and then trying to kill them, but he cannot trust the Hebrews, obviously, so he commands the Egyptians to go steal the babies and throw them in the river. In turn, Moses' mother, like the midwives, she's scheming to keep her son safe. So first she hides him for about three months and then when he's too big to hide, She puts him in a little basket, a waterproof basket, and sends it down the river. And his sister follows this basket down the river until it comes to rest on the riverbank, where in the very definition of irony, Pharaoh's own daughter sees the sweet baby and rescues him. And I love this exchange too. This is one of the parts of the Bible where I'm like, if you think the Bible is not funny. This is basically Moses's sister is like, gee, nice baby you found. <laughs> um, I might know a Hebrew woman who could nurse him until he's old enough to come back here once he's weaned. And then Pharaoh's daughter is like, that sounds like a wonderful plan. Thank you. <laughs> so then Moses gets to go back to his mom until he's weaned, and then he goes and lives in Pharaoh's house. And like, this just and we just skip over this stuff because like, oh, it's the Bible, we're just reading it. Pharaoh's daughter is. She had to have put it together, right? She's not a complete idiot, I hope. Like this is one of the babies that her father is trying to get rid of and she adopts him and keeps him safe in her father's house. Now, only baby Moses seems to have been spared this. We should not assume that the other children were so lucky. And I am only going to touch on this But the murder of these children by Pharaoh is the context for some of the wildly violent stories we find later in Exodus, where the angel of death comes and takes out the firstborn in every Egyptian household, where the entire Egyptian army gets drowned in the sea. We, from a modern perspective, we're like, how could God do that? From an ancient perspective, we skip over that tiny verse that says Pharaoh did this horrible thing. And it's worse than enslaving the Israelites, right? This is not an unprovoked attack by God later. It is an eye for an eye. It's tit for tat, it is ancient justice. And of course that justice might sound horrifying to our modern ears, because we've heard the message of Jesus in the New Testament that says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you to turn the other cheek want the Egyptians' godchildrens too? Good point. But when we're reading the story, I think we should not whitewash it or celebrate what happened. And it is very easy. Like I feel like the stories in Exodus where the firstborn in every Egyptian household is taken out and the story of the entire army drowning in the sea are very big stories that people point to and they're like, God is a terrible, terrible representation of God in the Old Testament. It's easy to be horrified, but it's very likely that we would want our own revenge as well. The full extent of the law and beyond, right? The death penalty for the people who took our children from us. So I think what we should do instead is Be honest that we feel conflicted about those stories when we get to them. And keep in mind how our own understanding of God and our own time in history is so wildly different than theirs. And it is not the only time we're going to have to do that in Exodus. But just keep in mind as we move forward over the next couple weeks that that incident is the context for those stories that are coming later. That Pharaoh did something so heinous that it it had to be retaliated against in the ancient world view. Now, this is another funny verse. Moses is a fine baby. It says, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, isn't it? It's like people used to ask me when Nova was little, like, is she a good baby? I'm like, well, she's not a bad baby. She's not like holding up convenience stores. <laughs> she's not spraying graffiti on the walls like there's no such thing as a bad baby okay so to put this in non-weird terms moses is a special baby this is what that word means there's a lot of hidden meaning here so first moses is from the tribe of levi which might mean nothing to us but is very important for the israelites all of the israelite priests would come from the tribe of levi and that means they had special access to god's presence calling moses fine the word fine is actually an echo to the creation story in genesis 1. Because fine is the Hebrew word tov, which is good. And God calls creation good when he makes it. It's the same word. So calling Moses tov means Moses himself is good. And Moses will be involved in the recreation of the Israelite people. Moses floats down the river in this little basket covered in tar. The same word that is used for the ark in Noah and the ark. The only time it's used in Hebrew scripture actually for Noah Noah, and for Moses. Just like Noah, Moses will be the focus of new life and new beginning for the Israelites. And when Pharaoh finds and saves Moses, she pulls him out of the water and names him Moses for she saves him from the chaos of the water just as the earth was created from the chaos of the water at the beginning of time. So Moses is saved as a baby. He's raised in Pharaoh's house. We did not get any peeks into his life as a kid or a teenager. Did he throw tantrums? Did he go joyriding in one of Pharaoh's chariots? We don't know. We don't get to know. (laughs) All we know is he was a baby and now he's a full grown adult. And the first recorded act he does as a full grown adult is kill an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew slave. Might seem impulsive and violent, but not random because this is a foreshadowing. Just as Moses' beginning has a ties to creation, right? It ties to Genesis. Moses' adult life has ties to what's going to happen in the future. So Moses will be doing, just a few chapters later, delivering Israelites from Egyptian mistreatment. Two verses later, Moses tries to break up a fight between two Hebrew slaves, and they tell him to mind his own business. Not very nicely. Um, In fact, they say, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian guy? Which is just a foreshadowing of how they're going to act for the rest of Moses' life. He's so lucky. The Israelites do nothing but antagonize him and harass him and complain to him um, and actually threaten his life at one point um, forever till he dies. (laughs) What a lovely life he has. Probably at some point, I just imagine Moses being like, this is what you saved me for. Should have let that basket sink to deal with these people. (laughs) Pharaoh finds out that Moses kills the Egyptian, presumably wants to punish him. He can finally get this guy out of his house, right? Moses immediately skedaddles across the desert in the Sinai Peninsula to a place called Midian where he gets into another fight with some shepherds and then meets his wife named Zipporah. Weird series of events. Again, not random. This is the exact journey that Moses takes across the desert in the Sinai Peninsula into Midian, the same journey that the Israelites will take exactly when they leave Egypt. While Moses is off gallivanting and getting married in the desert and like doing whatever with some sheep for 40 years, the Israelites are being buried alive in Egypt. So chapter two, verses 23 and 25 says, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and they cried out. Out of their slavery, a cry for help rose up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God looked on the Israelites and God took notice of them. The English translation of those last two phrases, God looked on the Israelites and God noticed them is really wordy. It has a lot more punch in the Hebrew. It's like God saw. God knew, and this is a key moment in the story. It's a pivotal turning point because now we understand why God has to deliver them to keep the promise God made to Abraham. Way back in Genesis, God swore to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, and God and Abraham made this ancient legal contract. So a long, long time ago in a desert far, far away, there was no such thing as law enforcement. There's no such thing as like you get to sue the person who like, didn't do whatever they said they were going to do to you. There's no small claims court, nothing, right? So there's no way to make sure that someone's going to keep their word. All you have is someone's word. And so important contracts were often consummated by a ritual in which several animals would be slaughtered and cut into pieces and laid out on the ground, like in two sides. And then both parties would walk through the animals and recite out loud what they were going to do, whatever they were promising. So normally this would happen between like kings and their subjects, rulers and their serfs, whatever, or even two equals, they would go through these things. The meaning is clear, right? If I fail to do what I am saying out loud that I promise you that I will do, may it be done to me as is done to these animals. Like, if I go back on my word, you can kill me. And God and Abraham made this actual very same covenant. God passed through the animal pieces, showing up as smoke and fire. But, this is crucial, Abraham did not. Abraham didn't say anything. Abraham didn't promise anything. There's no if-then clause So even if Abraham or his descendants fail to keep their end of the bargain, it doesn't let God off the hook. God agreed from the original ceremony with Abraham to keep showing off on behalf of the Israelites indefinitely. So here, when God hears the Israelites crying and sees what they're going through and remembers the agreement, right, that was made, this comes up again and again in the Exodus, it comes up again and again in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God, keeps the promise. No matter what, in all times, in all circumstances, no matter how far away the people stray, no matter the evil they do, no matter what is happening in the world, God keeps the promise. And that's where I want to land because I think a lot of times we've been taught to view a relationship with God through if then clauses. Like if I believe God, or if I say the sinner's prayer, then God will save me and then I get to go to heaven. If I keep up reading my Bible in my devotional time, then God will bless me. If I live rightly, whatever that means, then God will have to notice me. And I think it makes our relationship with God very transactional instead of relational. And a lot of evangelical theology boils down to these clauses when you go deep enough and they're inverse. What I mean by that, I'll give you some examples. For example, prosperity theology. Was anyone raised with prosperity theology? Like name it and claim it. God will just bless you, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. My mom used to be like, yeah, blab it and grab it. <laughs> <laughs> My mom's an old Pentecostal lady. <laughs> she does not play around. Also, no, that's an aside. <laughs> prosperity theology says if you just believe, if you just have enough faith, then God will bless you. The inverse is that if God is not blessing you with money or material things or health, then you don't have enough faith. The problem is you. How many of you were raised Baptist? Ooh, more, Mm, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Baptists that, you know, once saved, always saved. I love, just love that journey for us. Uh, That theology says if you believe in Jesus, then you get to go to heaven and nothing can ever take that away right? The inverse is if you used to believe in Jesus, but for some reason you've changed your mind or you aren't sure anymore or you aren't part of the faith anymore or in some specific scenarios if you aren't part of that church anymore, then your original salvation wasn't real to begin with. You didn't really believe or you would never have fallen away. Charismatic Dispensationalist Eschatology, otherwise known as Left Behind series, (laughs) says that God will come and rapture all the faithful away to heaven before the tribulation, which aside from the problems of like the rapture not existing and revelation not being at all about us, aside from that, the inverse is if you don't get raptured, you were not saved to begin with, despite the fact that you thought you were. Right? despite the fact that you've just dedicated your life to this. No, sorry, you were wrong. That has to be the answer, because we have an if and a then, and the then didn't happen, so therefore, I could go on and on, but I won't. The inverse is always there in every one of these structures of thought, and what's interesting to me about the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Bible, and subsequently with all people of faith to come after Abraham, is that there is no if-then clause. God essentially made a marriage vow, I will be here for you, for your descendants, for all people of faith, for better or worse, in richer and in poorer, in sickness and in health, for all of time and beyond. Maybe that's what it means in the New Testament when it says love never fails. God cannot walk away from us no matter what because God always keeps the promise. You not can come back up here. To be clear, I do think humans have the ability to walk away or at least choose a path of non-interaction with God. Like after all, Abraham made no promises during the ceremony. We have the free will to choose whether our path includes acknowledgement of and relationship with God or not. But this is the part I want you to remember. God already chose. God does not have to be bribed, begged, coerced, threatened, pleaded with, or dragged into a relationship with us. God already chose a relationship with us. God is already here. God is not going anywhere. This is the promise that God made thousands of years ago to humans and the promise that God is keeping in Exodus I and mean, here's the Israelites crying out in Egypt. It says, God saw and God knew. No matter where you are in your life or your faith or your mental health or your deconstruction or your trauma or your healing, it's the same. God sees. God knows. You have not been abandoned and you will not for any reason. All we have to do is just continue our practice of faith. Get more open, more loving, more faithful. Every day. Because then we'll experience in our physical bodies the reality of those words. We'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God knows and sees us and that nothing can ever take that away. Liberating God You set us free to live a life full of the fruits of the Spirit, not fear, but love, joy, and peace. Not retaliation, but patience, kindness, and goodness. Not knee-jerk reactions, but faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. With the Spirit as our guide, we will nurture the way of life in our souls. It is for freedom that we have been set free holy God. Sometimes fear and old habits limit our sense of what's possible. Expand our imagination that we might live in the abundance of all you intend for us. Guide us not towards a shallow, temporary freedom, but into the ocean of grace and healing that will utterly transform our hearts and the world. Amen.